Listeners, I want to thank you for listening to the show, and I hope you are sharing it with your classmates, coworkers, and anyone interested in medicine and education. The show is growing rapidly, and I want to sincerely thank each of you for taking the time to listen. There are many things you could be listening to now or spending your time on, so it means a lot that you find value in this material. If you have any suggested topics, please find Free Med Ed on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email freemededweb at gmail.com. We actually have so many topics that we would love to cover and would actually be interested in releasing episodes more frequently than just once a week. But to do this, we need help. It takes a lot of time to find and research guests, schedule meetings, record the show, edit the episodes, and then post all of this to the relevant feeds. If you would like to help out, I can train you on networking, audio editing, and social media. This can reflect positively on your CV as well. So if you would like more episodes or just want to learn new skills, reach out to any of our free MedEd accounts. Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Jason Mazel, a colorectal surgeon and clerkship director from the University of Arkansas. He has nine years of clinical teaching experience and is here to share some of his knowledge with us. He also runs a business of medicine course for the past five years. Dr. Mazel, thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. As we're going over some of the uh, new additions here, you had a great story that I really want you to share again with the audience, and that's the icebreaker question. So picking either the funniest or the scariest thing you've ever seen in a hospital setting. Yeah. So for me personally, as a trauma surgeon and general surgeon for the beginning of my career, I saw a lot of pretty scary stuff, but I wouldn't say you get used to it, but you just learn to deal with it. But one of the times that I was really the most nervous was whenever I was a third year a medical student on my surgery clerkship. I did not think I was going to do surgery, but my chief resident said there was a patient in the room that needed their infusion port taken out and asked me if I wanted to do it. So I was like, sure, this is an opportunity. I'll, I'll go tr- give it a try. And so I was in there getting all my stuff set up. And the lady said, how many uh, times have you done this? And I said, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to lie to you? And she said, I want you to tell me the truth. And I said, I have never cut anybody with a needle or, or the scalpel or done anything to a human being uh, such as this in my life. And she said, okay. So she didn't care that she just wanted to know how many I'd done. And so she just laid on back and we prepped her and took out the port without any problem. And it went well, but I was uh, extremely nervous doing it. But it was just such a like on the spot moment to where I thought I could sort of play like I was confident, like I'd done before and, and maybe get it, get it past her. But no, she totally nailed me. And <laughs> maybe there was something that she... <laughs> tell that I was nervous, but I was, I was already nervous and she just turned up the fire. And that was just one of those early career moments where I, I was very, very concerned that it was going to work out well. That's great. So if you weren't initially planning on going into surgery, is there a point that really shaped why you decided to go down that path? Yeah. So I came into medical school thinking I was going to do family medicine and surgery was the November and December of my third year clerkship. And I entered into surgery, not really having any idea what a surgeon really did, what their limitations were, who did bones, who did head, who did, you know, ENT stuff. I just kind of assumed that surgeon was a basket term that did all that stuff. And so I just began to learn more specifically about the different disciplines. And as I went through the surgery rotation, 
I began to realize that I, I really had a knack for sort of fine hand-eye coordination. I look back now and see that it makes sense because I used to play Legos a lot when I was a kid and play guitar and you know Transformers and a lot of just very fine motor stuff. I played baseball all through all through high school. And uh, so just a lot of hand-eye coordination sort of stuff. And on my rotation, I realized that all that was actually becoming very useful. And I was good at a lot of things and I would pick up on things quickly, but never occurred to me that my career would be as a surgeon. And so then in January and February, I did OBGYN and actually I liked that quite a bit. But then by the end of that rotation, I realized there were things that I did not like. And then surgery at that point became more appealing to me. But you know, it was eight weeks after my surgery rotation ended that I even really seriously gave surgery a consideration. And then I finished in medicine and peds and realized for sure those were not what was best for me. And so then went into my fourth year about probably 85% certain that surgery was what I wanted to do. I think that's pretty common for medical students as they enter their fourth year, not 100% certain, but they feel kind of weird about that, but that's okay. It's fairly normal. Um, but people don't really give that impression sometimes, I think. Yeah, we're all under the impression that we're going to know what we want to do, like beginning a third year, and it just doesn't usually work out that way. Totally agree with that. Yeah. I'm really curious because not only have most of our interviews so far been more in community aspect, less university setting, but also as a clerkship director, you probably have some of the most valuable clinical experiences and knowledge to share with the audience here. So what do you see as like your role in education in your profession? I, it's fairly complex. You know, most given medical school classes, only about 10 to 15% of people will go into surgery and the surgical subspecialties. So I'm generally looking at a, an audience of at least 50% going into just straight primary care. So I have to structure my clerkship to the 50% to the, the majority and the masses. And so it doesn't do a lot of good for me to teach a lot of very technical things about surgery and, and make sure students know the difference between a 3.0 silk and a 3.0 you know, proline and a 3.0 bicral. Um, what I want to make sure they understand is why are we taking out this person's gallbladder and when should I consult a surgeon for right upper quadrant pain? And when is the person too sick to undergo a surgery? And post-op day two, if their bilirubin is four, what does that mean? And what are the things that I should theoretically expect now that I'm an ER physician, you have know, a med student going into ER, what does that mean to me? What's the workup? And you know, when should I call surgery to help fix this problem? And, and so it's more of, of preparing the learner for all of the things they're going to really do in their job rather than the things that I think a surgeon should know because most of them aren't going into surgery. So more preparing them for when to consult, when not to consult, and then how to expect and recognize what a complication is uh, so that they can triage it and, and get us back on board. Okay. I like it. And that's probably an interesting transition since, especially if most of the students are just coming from basic sciences, from USMLE step study periods, then they always tell you in that exam prep period that you never consult. So now you kind of got to make the transition into clinical medicine, into reality where you need to know when you're supposed to actually do that. Right. And that is hard. I mean, because there's, because you know that a lot of times, particularly in a uh, academic setting that when you call a resident, they're going to be irritated that you just called them by a consult because it's more work for them. And so you want to make sure that if you're calling them, that it really is for the right reason and that you can be able to convey succinctly and appropriately what's going on and get them on board so they know that it's not a consult that's really not what they need to be involved in. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be learned just in playing the game a little bit so that whenever you do call that you, you're able to, to be able to present in a way they know they need to jump on. 
Got it. Okay. So even from such a subspecialized area of surgery and being as a surgeon, dealing with a lot of students that are probably going into primary care. So kind of geared your experiences and what you are really considering are going to be valid, useful points for the majority of students. But are there particular areas where a preceptor can really stand out or that they have certain good skills versus certain bad skills? Yeah, I I think what's really any any sort of preceptor, not just surgery. I think one thing that's that's really helpful is whenever we have medical students and residents with us, as we are assimilating it and going through all this information in our heads as far as when we see a patient, what's going on, you know, what's their diagnosis, what are other possible options, what are treatment options. I think a good preceptor really just thinks out loud and helps a medical student understand what's going on in their head because you may give a, a given differential as you go interview the patient. And then if all you just say is you're getting ready to walk back into the room is, oh, this person has colon cancer. Well, how do, how's the medical student supposed to know all the different things that you just ran through in your head to eliminate this, 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 and this off the list. And so I think just thinking out loud and letting them know your thought process and what you're doing in your head and the surgical options is really helpful because it just gives you insight as a medical student as to, okay, it's not this because of this or whatever. And just putting all the pieces together because it's, it's hard as a student because you get a very broken picture of any given disease process often, particularly in surgery. Because it may be that you see a pre-op that's got biliary colic, and then you may watch a totally different patient actually gets their gallbladder taken out, and then a totally different patient actually come back as a post-op after getting their gallbladder taken out. So you've got to put you know, patient A, his course with patient B that you did the surgery with patient C, the post-op care, and try to create this longitudinal framework in your mind of what it looks like start to finish. And so uh, attending, thinking out loud, I think does a good job of helping put all those pieces together and, and tell you the nuances and the difference between each one. I think especially as starting off in early clinical experiences for a student, it might follow the same mindset of when your hammer, everything looks like a nail because you have limited knowledge at that point. So everything looks like whatever you're most familiar with. So I agree that that's a great point. Having the more well-rounded view of the whole process is going to be very important. Are there any particular unsafe practices that preceptors should be aware of or that you've seen in clinical settings? You know, there's, it's hard as a preceptor because we have to do a good job of determining a student's confidence level and then also uh, competence. And so anytime we are really going hardcore with the old adage of, you know, see one, do one, teach one, I think that can be dangerous because there are some students that for whatever reason, maybe just haven't been exposed to it, don't feel confident, don't have the skill set, whatever. Uh, so I think it's dangerous to not have oversight. You know, it used to be in particularly in academic medicine that oversight was not common. You did a lot of just sort of fly by the seat of your pants type of medicine. And that that led to a lot of patient harm, I think, over the many years. And so as a preceptor, we have to really get a sense of how confident is this student? Do they just need a little guidance? Do they really need a lot more you know, teaching or are they independent enough to be able to go do this by themselves? And I think there's danger in all three of those, because if we're too intrusive and not letting students really grow and learn, then that's bad. But if we're also sending a student out to the wolves that isn't prepared, that's bad as well. And so really there's a lot of benefit for a preceptor that can be a good communicator and a good assessor of students' confidence and knowledge. And that just takes a little time to get to know the student. And so that's where a lot of the difficulty comes is as a preceptor is that time commitment, you know, to really just get in there and get to know the student and not just sort of, you know, blow them off or or treat them like they're uh, just there for a few few days and then move on. So you got to really invest. That's uh, quite a time commitment. 
It is, but it's it's good. It's worth it. That's why we're here. If we if we want to just be like super fast and blow through patients, then we would be in a private practice setting. But in academics, we know that it'll be a little slower, but that's that's okay. <laughs> Are there any particular maybe mistakes or something that stands out as a great learning experience from your past that you've learned from either that you've done or a coworker or student's done something that really stands out? So I remember when I started my third year surgery clerkship, my intern actually was a urologist. He was doing a year of general surgery, which urology typically has to do at least some months of general surgery. And I remember the very first day he pulled me and the other two students aside and was very clear on expectations. And said, look, this is what we want you to do. This is where we want you to show up. We expect you to you know, write notes on this many patients. And it was just very, very clear uh, what we were supposed to do. And I think Medical, medical students are, are very smart people and they're ambitious and they want to do good. But I think there is a lot of mistakes made because we don't do a, sometimes a very good job of saying exactly what we want you to do. And the first few days to maybe even weeks, you're just bopping along, just very, very uncertain. And I think that's wasted opportunities. I think that's wasted time for you to be able to jump in and hit the ground running. And so that lack of conveying expectations is really detrimental to the team, to the patient, to you as a learner. So what we did here a couple of years ago is we created an app that is a, a very UAMS uh, centered app. And so each service gave me a write up that I sent out to them. They laid out the expectations very clearly for each service because every service is very unique. Cardiothoracic has different expectations than plastics versus surgical oncology. And so we did that. And, and so now they can just download it and have it on their phone. So now they know, okay, when I show up for pediatric surgery today, I know where I'm supposed to be, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing, where I'm supposed to go, where the ORs are, just because that problem is too common. I mean, we need to, we need to really do a better job of letting you very smart students know what, what's expected of you. You'll rise to the occasion. You, you do. You want to. You want to learn. Um, we don't do a good job of telling you what, what we need and what you should do. I think the clear expectations is a common theme I've been hearing from a lot of preceptors so far as one of the, the key things. And it's also a frequently overlooked one. Yeah. The, the other thing I would say is, you know, you guys come out of your third year with learning a lot of in pharmacology, for instance. I mean, you know the generics, but a lot of times you don't know the trade names. And so we throw out jargon, we throw out abbreviations, and we throw out things expecting you to know it, but we don't, we don't uh, make it basic enough to help bridge that gap between second and third year. And in my, my business and medicine class, I see this all the time as well of, of financial planners assume that because you're a smart, soon to be physician, that you know all the jargon, but you don't. And so we've got to make sure that we're very clear with what we're saying and that you as a learner know what's going on because we can leave you in the dark pretty quick just because it's what we've been doing for so long. So we, we need to be careful to make sure we are, are clear in what we're, we're saying and not jump into fancy abbreviations or big words that you just guys just haven't learned yet. Yeah. There's <laughs> when you're learning a couple thousand generic drug names, and then you have to remember the different you know brand names too. It's quite overwhelming. I definitely want to come back to your your business course here, a business of medicine course at the end, because that's a a great little tidbit to leave people with uh, as far as more resources to look into. This is Chase DeMarco, and before we continue with today's great programming, I would like to share some information on my new book, Read This Before Medical School, with my co-authors Greg Rodden and Ted O'Connell. There are many blogs, podcasts, and books with tidbits of information and personal anecdotes for medical students. But wouldn't you like to know what the literature actually recommends? Wouldn't you like to have a simple yet powerful method for tackling board exam questions? Wouldn't you also like training in accelerated learning techniques? In our book, we introduce our MedEdge method, this powerful self 
self-assessment tool allows you to identify personal weak points in your studies and gives advice on how to correct them. So if you would like to know more, check out the links in the show notes or visit your online bookstore of choice and purchase Read This Before Medical School. It's not just for pre-meds, but any student with medical or specialty boards on the horizon. Not sure if you're ready to buy? No problem. Download our free essentials of PDF at freemeded.org slash medstudents. And now back to the show. Real quickly, since I know we've covered some of this just in your depiction of how to interact with a student, but the one minute preceptor model has the five steps. And do you go over these steps or is it just kind of innate in your teaching experience with students? Yeah, it's not quite as regimented as the one minute outline that that is, was originally released, uh, but I, I do the principles quite a bit. And so the way I'll, my clinic will be set up is I'll have the students go in and see the patient first and they'll come out, they present to me, and then I'll say, all right, what do you think this is? And so just really just put them on the spot rather than them just being a, a recall to me. I want them just to think through it. And so they'll you know give me maybe two or three things on the differential. I'll say, all right, well, what do you want to do about it? I mean, you know what you think it is now, so it's if I was not sitting here, what would you do? What test would you order? How would you work this patient up? And, and so really putting them in the driver's seat. And then when they maybe are correct, then I say, great, that's excellent. And then here's a couple more facts. Or if they're off base, I say, well, I, I'm not thinking this because of this. Now what's your differential and what is your number one uh, now? And so it really is just kind of standing right outside the patient's room and saying, all right, let's act like I'm not here. What you gonna do? What's your diagnosis? And 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 just making them take the role of a physician, even potentially even very early on. Um, and so then that will just be re- repeated over and over. And so I think when that expectation is set, when you go in and see the patient, as soon as you walk out, then you begin to then more intuitively start thinking through a differential. Like, okay, what really is this? Rather than just going and relying on the attending or the resident to tell you what it is. And it seems like a lot of preceptors basically follow this model without actually knowing that they're following this model. So what you just said, you ask them for a commitment by asking them what their diagnosis is and you probe for supporting evidence. They're giving a couple options and explaining why they chose those options. You're reinforcing what was done properly by giving them compliments and a few more resources to look more in depth. And so we're everyone is kind of following this model, but I like to break it down for students that might not be able to notice that there's this stepwise process to following to really make sure you're not missing a step. I think it's good for the students to know this model is out there too. So that when they have a attending that is not following it, then they can try to probe the attending to, you know, to start doing and asking them questions a little bit more rather than them. Yes, precisely. All right. So real quick for some of these student questions here too, what are some things that you expect a student to know when they start or expect from them? In surgery, we really harp on making sure that the students, when they arrive to the operating room, that they know the patient, they know their history, they know their diagnosis, they know why they're there, and a general idea of what is going to happen during that operation. Here at an academic institution, you know, we get a lot of very complex patients, and, and sometimes it's just over over their head, and that's understandable. But if I'm going in to do a right hemicolectomy for a colon mass and the cecum, then I want the student to know, okay, how did this mass get discovered? And what was their initial presenting symptom? Because if you know the whole picture, then it's just a better learning experience. And so during the surgery, I may ask them, okay, where would you expect the lymph nodes to be? And what is this blood vessel? And how am I going to do my anastomosis and stuff like that? And so if the student doesn't know the patient beforehand, then it really does hurt their, their learning. And so what I want to make sure is that, or what I tell the students is, you know, again, just like in clinic, if I wasn't standing here, what would you do? What are some steps this operation? I mean, obviously they're going to have a, a third year med student level of knowledge, but put yourself in the, the driver's seat and, and act like I wasn't here. And 
what are some pitfalls of this operation and things to watch out for. So an unprepared student uh, really in any facet is, um, is one of the biggest concerns that I see. It just shows lack of engagement and lack of caring. And then my concern is that you would carry that same mentality over into your patient care when you become a resident and a, a you know, board certified MD. And that's, that's a professionalism problem, you know, and that's something that is just not okay. So it sounds like you also would recommend that they brush up on their anatomy. They know the procedure basics before going in there. So there's not just research before joining your rotation, but research before each procedure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because every procedure is unique and every patient is unique. And so you've got to know those nuances. And what I tell students is once you've read the chart and once you've read about the surgery, if there's something that you still don't understand, that's fine. Some of these are very complex. So then you can ask your residents or you can ask me. I'll be glad to explain it, but I don't want the first thing you do is to be asking somebody else to tell me, you know, what you know, Mr. Resident, about this this patient, because it may not be something you can understand. So you need some back knowledge there to you know read in a book before you get there. Lack of understanding is not a problem, but lack of effort is definitely a problem. That's a common one I hear as well. Lack of effort, lack of interest. If you're not enjoying your time there, you're not going to be engaged and not going to learn a lot. Yeah, right. And the preceptor is not going to want to teach you. So that's right. Are there any tips for if they wish to get a letter of recommendation for you, things to look out for, do, not do? So uh, so letters of recommendation are a, a funny business because there are a lot of very generic letters that are written uh, and it's just not helpful. I mean, your your application packet for your during your fourth year is, is a very precious amount of pieces of information in there. And the stuff that is controllable by you is really your, your CV and your personal statement. But those letters are extremely important. And so really making sure that the faculty that write your letter, that you have spent some time with them and you've gotten to know them and you've had some time just sitting in their office so they can really say, yes, I have met several times with this student and I can attest that they are a hardworking student and they really are interested in internal medicine and they're going to do great at it because their decision is very well thought out, et cetera, et cetera. So it is, it's really a, a relationship letter. And so uh, very shallow, superficial letters are just not helpful for me as a, when I interview, you know, medical students coming through for our residency, there's, there's not a whole lot of information in there because grades these days are very watered down and, and all on the same playing field with, you know, pass fails and stuff. It's, it makes it to where all the more emphasis is on your step and your letters and your personal statement. So it needs to be a very well thought out letter by someone who really can say, yes, this student is great. And I know they're great because I've seen it. Actually, that brings up a great point that another physician brought up is even if a doctor thinks that they're writing a very good letter, they might not know certain rules of things to say and not say. So they're not necessarily writing you the best letter. So a student might you know, not know that going in and might bite them later. Yeah, there's there's some very subtle language in those letters that we use to help uh, bring a point across. But, but what you would like to do also is you want to typically request letters from people who are associate professors or full professors uh, because they do know the game a little better and they just have a little more sort of, for lack of a better word, kind of academic clout, just more authority, I guess, because we know that those people have seen a lot of students come through and they can know a really great one when they see them. An assistant professor letter is fine, but you definitely don't want your entire packet being nothing but assistant professors. And the more letters you can get out of people that are in your specialty, the better as well. We get very nervous about people applying for surgery to get letters from psychiatrists. Nothing against psychiatry, but we want to know why did you not have enough surgeons that know you that can give you a letter? Uh, so you want to be very heavy in your discipline and particularly the, the chairman of your department. 
And that sounds doubly difficult if, like we discussed initially, even in your fourth year, you might not know what you want to do yet, and you might not have enough time at the end to get enough in that specialty. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It is. It's tricky. I mean, you know, September 15th is the deadline every year. And so you can essentially start doing rotations right off the bat, and you've got July, August, and then part of September. And so your hope would be that you're, you get one letter from the dean, one letter hopefully from your chairman, and then maybe whoever you're rotating with in July and then August, and that would be your, your four letters. That's, that's an ideal situation. Awesome. I think that's a, a lot of very valuable information, something for students to look out for if maybe they weren't clear on some of these points before. And, and even with this knowledge, it's still quite tricky. But Yes, it is. The last thing here is a personal question. You can choose either one of these or both if you feel like it. Question one would be, is there anything that you would have done differently in your education or career? Or question two, if you had one dream that you would like to see happen in medicine in your lifetime, what would it be? That is a good question. You know, really with my business of medicine class, I really would like for there to be more focus on that. Um, I started teaching it in 2011 and have seen a lot of very dumb mistakes by residents and medical students. You know, they just really getting used to the physician lifestyle before they've got the physician funds, you know, and so um, it's put a lot of students in a lot of jeopardy. And so the, the decision making just has to be very, very careful, even as you start off at the beginning of medical school, as far as how much loan do I take out? Do I really need to buy this house? My car is a junker. I need a new one. Do I get a brand new one? Or do I settle for something that's not that great because it's it's actually a fine car. It's just not super awesome to have that new car smell. And so really, I just I want to see more and more there be some emphasis on preparing medical students for that transition of actually when they start making money and then preparing residents for when they start making, quote unquote, doctor money, because there's that those two time periods of transition are very critical such that a lot of mistakes are made and then they're not repaired. And so that the mistake just continues to have snowball effects for years and years. And so if you navigate those transitions well, it is extremely beneficial long-term. And most people want to do the right thing. They just don't know what that right thing is. So a little education goes a really long way there. So I would just like to see more of a curriculum around finance just to help prepare future doctors. That's a great point to bring in where people can find this course and what you cover in it. So I've done a couple, I guess maybe three now, um, been hosted on three different podcasts about it where we talk about it. So the White Coat Investor hosted me and the Dr. Money Matters and then um, Doctors Unbound uh, have just talked about different aspects of the course. I've published a couple papers on it that would give more detail on just the research aspect of it. If there's maybe a student out there that has an interest in doing something like this at their school and where to get started. So one was uh, Journal of Surgical Research, I believe was the first one. Money Matters was the name of it. And then the newest one was in the Journal of Medical Practice Management. And you can just search those and or you can just email me directly if you want here at UMS. And I'm on Twitter as well, Jason Mazel, uh one on Twitter. And so I have a lot of just areas where I'm, I'm out there to be reached. And so it would be something that is very easy to start because probably nobody at their institution is doing it. But it's a, a course that's about 20 hours long that starts in January and ends in April of a medical student's fourth year class. It's an elective that we do here. And so we talk about everything from investing to budgeting to debt reduction to student loan payment to then professional things like billing and coding, malpractice avoidance, how to set up a practice. Whenever you, we have, usually have like resident panels and we'll say, these are dumb things that we did and 
things that we should have not done and you know, just some personal testimonies of residents and, and guide our students. And we have a lot of interest from our students in that. It's the most popular elective on campus. And so a lot of students showed up. We had 150 enrolled in the class last year. So it's, it's big and it's it's busy, but it's it's fun. And it's just something different to learn because you're so tired of learning about Krebs cycles and you know all these different cytokines and this and that. So it's kind of fun to talk about money a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get away from the medicine. And a lot of physicians are going into entrepreneurship and right. uh, private practice and other things where you need to have some business sense or at least get the basics down. And if nothing else, who doesn't want to pay off their loans a little bit quicker? Right, no doubt. Yeah. We'll definitely add uh, links to all those in the show notes. Are there any resources you'd recommend for general surgery or colorectal surgery if they want to get super subspecialized? The, the book that we use for our clerkship is starting to become more common. It's De Virgilio's is the textbook. Um, the, a new edition that actually is probably just about to come out. And it's a very good textbook and it's quite, quite comprehensive. A lot of clerkships still use Lawrence textbook which is a little, eh, it's, a, it's pretty, pretty dense and it's kind of hard to follow, but I think, I think Virgilio's is a little better. But um, as far as surgical resources specifically, there is uh, a very, very big crowd now on Twitter. There are some surgeons that are really good in education. There's a American College of Surgeons course for fourth year medical students that's very good, that helps uh, network and get to know some other leaders in the educational community. It does a, a practice CV and a practice mock oral exam and practice interview and not tying skills and all that. So that's a kind of a cool course. And you get to meet a lot of other program directors and stuff like that. And I'm always available if somebody wants to ask me some questions or chat or whatever. Awesome. Do you have any parting thoughts for students? Yeah, I would say go into the third year open-minded because there are the occasional student in your class that is very certain of what they want to do. And that's fine, but they can make you feel kind of dumb, you know, and incompetent or, or like you're, you're behind the eight ball already. Uh, but really the, what I have seen in my last 10 years is that actually what's more common is for students not to know what's going on during their third year. Uh, so don't freak out too much too early. That's what the third year is for. And so just let it do its work and go through it, figure out what you like, what you don't, um, and just let the the system work on behalf of the way it's set up for you so that you can figure out what you want to do. But don't put too much pressure on yourself. It'll it'll work itself out. Everyone feels like they're the only one that doesn't know yet what they're doing. That's right. Yeah. And it's, the reality is that you're probably uh, in a big crowd of people who have no idea what's going on. So. Probably. Um, what about anyone that is interested maybe in becoming a preceptor, whether in academics or private? So I, I was pretty late, actually, to the academic game. I did not really know if I was going to do private practice or academics until fairly late uh, in my residency. And then even in my fellowship, I was questioning a little bit. Uh, so for me, whenever I was a resident, I did not do much research. I was married. I had a, two children ultimately during residency. And I felt like all I could do in my surgery residency was keep my head above water pass my exams well, and take care of my family. I would say what is more important rather than cranking out a bunch of papers is just really having a heart to teach, which I did. Um, and so when I showed up at UMS, I did not have like a basic science lab or a long track record, but I had won a lot of teaching awards because I just wanted to spend time with people and make sure that they knew what was expected and that I just took care of them, spent time with them. And so I think that heart of wanting to nurture and help those that are coming along is way more important then, you know, cranking out a lot of super advanced papers and whatnot. So if you don't have that, it's okay. If the heart's there, then you can, you can find a, a place and have a good career in academic. Perfect. I love that advice. Well, Dr. Jason Mazzell, 
thank you so much for coming on the show today. A lot of great information there. Well, good. I hope it's helpful. And if, like I said, if anybody needs me, I'd be glad to reach out and connect and, and you know, answer some questions and things like that. That's why I'm here. So glad to help.